Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also want to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoy the sermon today. God bless. All right, good morning, Renew Church. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, so great to be able to share with one another, especially about our life's experiences. I know in the morning, it's hard to share these big, big questions that we give you sometimes. So thanks for doing that because it's such, such a blessing to be able to hear from each other about what the Lord's doing in our lives. Amen? Amen. Okay, so I want to share a life-changing experience with you. Uh, my salvation story uh, happened my freshman year of high school, and it was very dramatic. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, theologians call it the, an Augustinian experience, and, and I had that. Uh, I was saved and called into ministry at the same time. So right when I came to know the Lord, I really believed the Lord called me into full-time Christian ministry. And so I took it seriously, and uh, in high school, I prepared for going to Bible college and when I got to Bible college, I prepared as much as I could for the pastorate. I did everything to prepare to be a pastor. I went ahead and um, I interned uh, doing counseling. Uh, I uh, signed up for uh, doing visitations, uh, going to people's homes. Uh, I went ahead and uh, I um, went out uh, almost every week uh, sharing the gospel and evangelizing and even doing street evangelism. Uh, I uh, went ahead and led small groups. I did children's ministry. Whatever I could, I wanted to do to prepare for pastoral ministry. I did everything but preach sermons. No sermons. And I did that because I didn't have the gift of preaching. Uh, I was shy. Uh, I didn't like being up in front of people because I felt uh, really weird, um, you know, uh, getting up and doing that. I would never accept, you know, MC gigs or anything like that. I just really felt like it was not one of my gifts. Uh, I was a resident advisor or an RA uh, in college in the dorms, and uh, my dorm supervisor, uh, who was my mentor at the time, uh, invited me to speak at an event for college students. There were gonna be like 50 college men at this event. And I told him, I don't preach. That's not what I do. It's not my spiritual gift. And I remember he said to me, and, and keep in mind, this was one of my mentors, uh, he said to me, if God has called you to be a pastor, then your job is to preach the word of God. And if that's not one of your gifts, then, you know, Dave, maybe you should reconsider. And that was coming from a mentor. Whatever you think of that, what he, what he shared with, with me, that was coming from my mentor. And that brought a lot of anxiety to my life. I started thinking, am I called to be a pastor? When I got saved, did God really call me? And so uh, at the school, they had what was called a prayer closet, 
where you could go and you could just be alone with the Lord and you could bring anything to him. So I would go into the prayer closet and I asked God if I was really called to ministry, uh, if my gift wasn't preaching, because I can't preach, right? Well, one day the Lord impressed on me to enter our school sermon contest, okay? So there were sermon contests where ministerial students uh, could give a sermon or even people who are outside of the ministry could give a sermon. And what they had to do is they had to uh, bring uh, a, an outline uh, and it happened every year. And so we had that year 300 entries where they uh, passed in that outline. And so from that outline, they would choose 30 messages, right? 30 people who would give messages to different judges, okay, in different various parts of the campus. And so if you got selected as uh, out of the 30, you would go to the semifinals, which was seven people, okay? And so, and, and then you would have to preach the ministerial class, which is pretty large, okay? You would have to preach to the ministerial class. And then if you got picked, you would be one of the three finalists who would preach a sermon on commencement weekend. And so the winner was announced during graduation uh, celebrations, okay? And so I knew this. This happened every year. It was my senior year, and I totally didn't want to enter my outline. I kept telling the Lord in the prayer closet, Lord, don't make me do this. I'm not gifted. I'm shy. I'm going to look stupid. I'm not cut out to give sermons. And the Lord kept impressing on my heart, no, you need to enter, so I obeyed, I handed in my outline, because what do I have to lose? I'm not going to get picked anyway. And to my amazement, my outline was picked out of the 300. And then to my amazement, I was picked out of the 30 to preach in the semifinals. I'd never preached before, okay? And then to my amazement again, I was picked out of the seven to preach in the finals. I had never preached before. Now, I was picked as one of the three to preach on commencement weekend. And I remember every time these rounds would happen, I would run into the prayer closet and I would say, Lord, help me. I really don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's happening. And every time the Lord assured me, no, I want you to do this. And I remember preaching my first sermon to 5,000 people. I remember that like it was yesterday. I remember God answering my prayer about if he called me to be a pastor in full-time Christian ministry by allowing me to be a part of the sermon contest. And by the way, on graduation day, they announced that I won the sermon contest. I know, I know, because it's all about contests and sermons, right? All right, but anyway, so, and they gave me a trophy. And the trophy was a new open study Bible with my name on it. It says Sermon Contest 1992, okay? And you know what? The reason I share this with you is not to gloat, of course, right? But I want to share this with you because that was a memorial to me. That was an answer to prayer. I don't have the gift of preaching, but God allowed me to win this so that I would always remember that wherever I am, no matter what I do, I'm called. And it's never, whether it's a group of 10 people or whether it's a group of 1,000 people, it doesn't matter because I really, really uh, believe that God has called me, and that experience has changed my life. You know, experiences play a huge role in our lives. Writer B.J. Neblett asserts, we are the sum total of our experiences. Can we put that up, please? We are the sum total of our experiences. Those experiences, be they positive or negative, make us the person we are at any given point of our lives. And like a flowing river, those same experiences 
And those yet to come continue to influence and reshape the person we are and the person that we will become. There is definitely some truth to this statement because our life choices or our choices in life's experiences determine who we are and determine what we will become. In other words, experiences shape our character as Christians. Do you know that the Lord allows experiences into our lives so that it will prepare us and shape us as his children? An experience can teach us valuable life lessons. An experience can give us new, profound perspective. An experience can challenge our entrenched ideas. It can equip us for something way down the road. It can motivate and encourage us in our greatest need. And I want to ask you this morning, how has God used experiences in your life to prepare and shape you to become a stronger Christian? You know, this morning we want to study a principle from our text in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 36, on how we can please God in the experiences of our lives. And so I'm only going to give a one-point sermon this morning. I've never given a one-point sermon in my life, but I'm going to give you a one-point sermon. And they're going to have two sub-points, okay? But still, it's a one-point sermon. And so if you're taking notes, write this down, okay? Worship Jesus in your experiences. That's my one point. Worship Jesus in your experiences, or in our experiences. Uh, The way we can please and honor the Lord is to worship Jesus, our Messiah, in all the experiences of our lives. So here's the sub-point, okay, that's really important. Number one sub-point, we worship Jesus in our valleys. Would you write that down? We worship Jesus in our valleys. In verses 18 through 27, uh, and I'm kind of giving you the context. Last week, Pastor Kevin did an amazing job preaching uh, on this passage, and so I'm not re-preaching anything, but I want to set the context so that you understand this idea of valleys, okay? Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is, and remember, they've seen him do everything uh, imaginable. He's calmed the sea. He's cast out demons. He's cured diseases. He's called the dead to life. They've witnessed who Jesus is in their day-to-day experience. And so Jesus speaks for all of them when he says in verse 20, you are God's Messiah. But instead of a positive affirmation and a positive vision, verse 22 says, and Jesus Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Messiah's plan is suffer, rejected, killed. Jesus also said he'd rise again, but I'm sure they were stuck on the other three things that Jesus said as they're thinking, what? What? We just said that you were Messiah and now you give us your plan? Think about this from the perspective of the disciples. They've been following Jesus for over three years. They were convinced that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And so they left everything to follow him. The disciples were all in on Jesus. They put all their eggs in the Jesus basket. And they expected Jesus would set up a messianic kingdom, but he shatters their expectations by telling them that his mission is to suffer, to be rejected, and to be executed on a shameful cross. Pastor Kevin did a wonderful job talking about um, the cross being shameful, but that's exactly the, the, the force of what the disciples felt. But not only this, in verse 23, he tells them, whoever wants to be my disciple must 
deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Not only is Jesus saying his mission is suffer, rejected, killed, but he's saying if you follow me, you might also suffer, rejected, killed. And I'm sure the disciples weren't ready for that. Do you know what Jesus was doing? He was telling his disciples that from now on, they have to prepare to enter a valley. What is a valley? Well, geographically, it's a stretch of lowland between mountains. It's a geological depression. But do you know emotionally, it's any situation that's filled with struggle, where it's filled with a depression and despair and disillusionment and fear. It's where we're at an emotional low in our life. Physically, it's when we're completely spent, when we're worn out and fatigued and feeling very vulnerable. What is a valley? Well, very, very simply put, it's the lowest point. Geographically, it's the lowest point. Emotionally, it's the lowest point. Physically, it's the lowest point. And we see the disciples are going to enter the lowest point with Jesus. Now, why does God allow valleys? Well, number one, valleys show us what we're really made of. Valleys are crucibles. They're character checks in our life. Because it's in a valley that we are tempted to run away from God. To find the easy way out. To escape the fierceness of the valley. We escape or run away. It's in the valley that we're tested and our true colors come out. To see our true character and how I respond to the lowest points of my life. Valleys show us what we're made of. But you know what else it does? Valleys force us to look up. Stop and think about that for a moment. Isn't that true? If a valley is your lowest point, then there's nowhere else to look but up. Why do I have valleys in my life? So that I will look up to the Lord. Psalm 121 verse 1 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You see, valleys teach us to worship. What does worship mean? It means to bend the knee. Worship is bending the knee and focusing on who Jesus is. It's putting your focus in the right place. It's putting your priority on the right person. Let's look in verse 24. Can we put it up? Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his glory. Verse 27, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus calls his disciples to worship him even in the midst of of the trials and the suffering and the rejection that they will face. Now here's a question I have. How do I worship Jesus in the valleys? You might say, Pastor Dave, I really want to do that, but I'm not sure what it looks like to worship Jesus, to bend the knee in the valleys of my life. Can you give me an example? Well, yes, I can. If you would put up the next slide. This is a picture of my nine and a half year old English bulldog. Her name is Zelda. I call her my old lady because uh, bulldogs, if you guys know, uh, live about eight to ten years, so she's nine and a half. She's, uh, she's getting up there. And I, I love her very much. You know, bulldogs are beautifully ugly, aren't they? Right? Uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, um, different uh, dog types, cocker spaniels, uh, retrievers, uh, they don't look 
uh, very beautiful to me. For some reason, they don't just do it for me. But there's something about an ugly, ugly bulldog that's just so wonderful, okay? And I know what you're thinking. Alexis has gone to college now, so now you're scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to find illustrations, right? <laughs> and there's probably some truth to that. But this story makes sense, okay? Last week, I took Zelda to the vet because she had a major ear infection. Now, in Zelda's mind, the veteran is the devil, okay? Because she has experienced only pain whenever she goes to the vet. Uh, she's had uh, a few surgeries, some major, some minor. She's endured shots. She's always, when we go to the vet, having to endure some pain. So when she was younger, right, every time we went to the vet and she realized that we were at the vet, she would shake in fear. She would, she would whine. She would, that's the kind of voice that she has, right? That deep voice, you know, and she would, she would go crazy. And when I got her into the vet to check and we put her on the table, she would run to try to escape. She would try to leave as fast as she could because she didn't want to feel the pain. But you know what's interesting is I took her to the vet. She's nine and a half years old now. I took her to the vet to take care of some stuff. And undoubtedly, there was going to be some pain, right? And uh, she was in there. And it looked like she wanted to do all the things that I'm used to her doing, right? Because she's so, so uh, anxious about being at the vet. But I looked at her, and nine and a half years of saying, Zelda, look at me. I always do that. Zelda, look at me. And she would look at me, and she remained calm, and she waited on me. Her little tail, okay, would wag. You could tell that she was anxious, and she wanted to escape. And as the doctor was giving the shot and cleaning her ears, I knew that it wasn't comfortable for her, that there was some pain involved. But nine and a half years of being with me, she has learned to trust me even in the discomfort of the vet clinic. I'm her Lord. I'm her master. Now, she doesn't understand my purpose or plan here. But even though she's scared and nervous, in the midst of suffering, she will lock eyes with me, and as long as she locks eyes with me, all right, she knows that she's safe. She knows who her master is. You know, worshiping Jesus in the valleys mean, means being like Zelda, that even though <clears throat> we don't know the how, when, and why of the valleys that we're in, that we submit to our master's sovereign purpose and plan. We don't know what it is when we're in the valleys, but we bend the knee in obedience. Amen? How about you this morning? Are you worshiping Jesus in the valley of your life? Worship Jesus in your experiences means that we worship Jesus in our valleys. Can we put the next slide up? But it also means that we worship Jesus on our mountains. Let's look in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and uh, John with him and went up to a mountain to pray. Verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking to Jesus. So the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus' appearance totally changed. Matthew and Mark give the same story, but in their Gospels, they use the term transfigured. Now this means that Jesus' form completely changed from what it normally looked like while he was here on this earth. The word transfiguration is where we get our word metamorphosis from. It's what happens when a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his sermon said, 
on this mountain, Jesus was breaking forth from the cocoon of the Son of Man to become the Son of God. You know, the gospel writers are conveying that Jesus looked otherworldly. He is now stripped of his human cocoon to reveal and manifest his deity, who he was on the inside. But not only this, but the Bible describes there were two men with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who were also clothed in glory and splendor. Now, think about this, okay? I know you've already know this, but Moses died 1,400 years ago from this event, and Elijah passed 1,000 years from this event. And now these two men of history are with, with uh, Jesus. Now, why Moses and Elijah? It's because these two men represent the law and the prophets in Jewish history. And every Israelite would have known them as their heroes, okay? Moses was Israel's greatest leader. He led them out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them God's laws. He authored the five books of Torah. Moses was Israel's lawgiver. Elijah was Israel's greatest prophet. He declared judgment on Israel's sin and idolatry. He brought a revival back to Israel as uh, the Israelites returned and repented of their sins. Elijah was Israel's greatest prophet. And these two men symbolized the law and the prophets, right? The Jewish people called their scriptures the law and the prophets. What Luke is doing is he's showing us that the Old Testament scripture leads to Jesus the Messiah, The Old Testament looked forward to this day of Jesus. The sacrifices, the laws, the temple, the feasts, the pictures, the prophecies, they all foreshadowed Jesus and his sacrifice for sin. And I want you to look at what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about. Verse 31, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, the word departure isn't a good translated word. I really don't believe it is because it's confusing. It confuses us. The word departure in the original language is the word exodus, okay? And Moses and Elijah were discussing the exodus that Jesus was going to lead, bringing it to fulfillment. Now, that word exodus opens up profound perspective for us, doesn't it? That Jesus is talking about, excuse me, the plan of salvation that he is in fact going to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. That Jesus was going to lead the greatest gospel exodus in the history of the world. That he was going to fulfill God's plan of salvation. Can you imagine being there as Moses is talking to Jesus about the exodus, right? And we don't know what was said, but uh, let me, give me poetic license because I can imagine that this is what Moses said. Lord, I was privileged to lead millions of your people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. But you, Messiah, are going to lead all of humanity, past, present, and future, out of the bondage of the slavery of sin, death, and hell. You're going to make it possible to receive eternal freedom. And I can almost hear him give his catchphrase, Lord, we will stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Right? My mini exodus was a picture of your mega exodus. My exodus foreshadowed the exodus that you have planned from the foundation of the world. And you know, Elijah must have chimed in too. I mean, Elijah was there, so I have to, I have to do this, okay? Give me poetic license. He says, Lord, I was blessed to lead a revival where your people, Israel, repented and turned back to you once again. 
The curse of sin was lifted, and the deadly drought finally ended. And now uh, it was allowed rain to fall on a dry and barren land. But you, Messiah, are going to lead the greatest revival in human history. You will reverse the curse of Adam and bring restoration to a dry and, dry and barren souls who need the reign of forgiveness and salvation. My mini revival was a picture of your mega revival. My revival foreshadowed the revival that you will accomplish and you have been planning it from the foundation of the world and all of us as prophets have been waiting for your day. Can you imagine how exciting that conversation must have been? Moses and Elijah were cheerleaders sent to encourage Jesus in the dark days of suffering that lay ahead of him at Jerusalem. So meanwhile, remember, Jesus took his inner circle, his closest disciples, Peter, John, and James, up to the mountain to pray in verse 32. Can we put it up? It says, and Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Here, they had a mountaintop experience. What is a mountain? Put up the next slide, please. What is a mountain? Well, if valleys are our lowest points, then mountains are the highest points in our life. It's when we receive abundant blessing from God. It's when our dreams finally come true. It's when we become tangibly successful. It's when our deepest desires are fully realized. And the disciples were experiencing a mountain. They were able to see Jesus in supernatural glory. Up until this point, they have seen Jesus do miracles, but as a human man. They've seen a man cure diseases. They've seen a man cast out demons. They've seen a man raise the dead. When he calmed the storm, they asked, who is this man? But now they see the other side of the curtain. And behold, he is the God-man. He is deity in human form. And as he strips off his human cocoon, he transforms into Jesus, God the Son. So for Peter, James, and John to wake up and actually see their dreams come true, to actually be a part of this messianic glory, it was a desire that was realized. And I'm sure they must have been talking to each other, wow, guys, this is as good as it gets. I knew Jesus was Messiah. I knew he was special. He's proving it right now. I'm so glad I committed my life to him because we are the only people who are witnessing this glory. Christian, they were on the mountaintop. And what do you do when you're on a mountain? What do you focus on? What is your posture? Well, let's look at what the disciples do. Verse 33. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying, okay? Now, does this seem odd to you that the disciples would want to put up shelters? Well, this event of the transfiguration was six months before Jesus' crucifixion. That means that it fell on the Jewish month of Tishri during the holy day of Sukkot, okay? In the English, we know it as the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you know anything about the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles, it was celebrated to commemorate the exodus from Egypt. They looked back on when God saved their forefathers from slavery in Egypt and sustained them in the wilderness while they were moving around in tents. So during Sukkot, Jews would build sukkahs or tents. These shelters were where they lived in for one week. They lived outside of their permanent homes on the, in these tents to celebrate this high and holy day. 
So the disciples were offering to build sukkahs or shelters for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what the disciples did is what many of us are tempted to do when we're on the proverbial mountains. We want to focus on the mountains. When they woke up and saw Moses and Elijah, this was every Jewish person's dream to see Moses and Elijah. I mean, they have read about them in synagogue. They've heard their stories from their rabbis. I'm sure that when they were little, they even dreamed about being Moses or Elijah. It was their superheroes, right? To see them in person was overwhelming. So I understand why this verse states, he did not know what he was saying, okay? A couple weeks ago, uh, Wilson shared an amazing story of how he met Lynn Sanity, Jeremy Lynn. But did you know on that very same day, I met someone too? Don't put the picture up, okay? I met someone too. It was so serendipitous, okay? I was dropping off my daughter uh, for orientation at UCLA, and uh, we were in the parking lot, and uh, I saw my wife and I, it was pretty empty in that parking lot, we saw some of the tallest people we had ever seen in our lives, okay? Uh, they were just, they, were like, they looked like giants, okay? And so my wife's like, is that somebody special? And I kept looking. I didn't even really listen to her. We were in our cars. We were driving out. And I looked, and I saw somebody that was a superstar, okay? And so I rolled down my window. <laughs> we were leaving. I rolled down my window, and I saw him and his brother. And I said, hey, Giannis, what's up? How you doing, Right? And it was, you pick the, put the picture up, it was Giannis Antetokounmpo. It was the Greek freak, okay? And he looked at me and goes, yeah, I'm doing good, all right? <laughs> and I remember driving a little way, and, and, and my wife goes, do you know him? And I said, no, I don't know him at all. And she goes, well, then why did you say that? And I go, I don't know what I was saying, you know? I was so excited to see him. And so as I was driving away, uh, my wife is like, oh, does he play for UCLA? And I'm like, no, he's one of the greatest players of all time. And you got to understand, my hero, you know how Wilson's hero is Jeremy Lin? My hero is the Greek freak. My position in basketball was power forward. I was not good at it, okay? But I played power forward, and I was face-to-face -face with the greatest power forward of all time, okay? And I didn't know what I was saying. I was so starstruck. And she said, do you want a picture with him? And I said, yeah, yeah. And she goes, do you, do you want to? I said, no, I can't ask him. And she said, okay, I'll ask him. So she rolled down the window as we were leaving. She said, Giannis, we're your greatest fans, okay? Will you take a picture with us? And he said, yeah, come on, you know? And that's how we took the picture. And I was so excited. Oh, you can clap for me. That's cool. That's cool. Yes, yes, you know? And the reason I share my story is I'm a competitive guy and I want to one up Wilson, right? <laughs> because Jeremy Lin, right, the, the mini NBA player, foreshadows the greatest NBA player. I'm just joking. <laughs> But you understand what I'm saying. I was so starstruck, right? Because I was his biggest fan. See, when the disciples were offering to build shelters, they were implying equality to Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. They're saying, I'm placing you all on the same level. You three are my heroes. I put all three of you on my pedestal. And the reason we know this is true is because of the response of the father later on in verse 35, and we're gonna look at it later on. But here, Peter, James, and John witness Jesus' glory, yet their response is to spread his glory or this glory to other people. And they forgot that Jesus alone deserves all the glory. Aren't we susceptible to this as well? We focus on the mountains. 
Meaning that we are, when we are on the mountaintops of success, we're tempted to focus all of our attention to the people, places, and things that we've been blessed with on the mountains, and we place them on equal footing with Jesus in our lives. And do you know what happens? They become idols. You know, our heroes can become our idols. Hey, what are the Moseses and Elijahs that you idolize, that you put on a pedestal, that you build shelters for next to Jesus on the mountaintops? Maybe it's your career. Your career is your identity that you work and obsess over. And you've been blessed with it by the Lord, but now it's the priority of your life. Or maybe it's that sweetheart, that girlfriend or boyfriend that you place on a pedestal, that that relationship is what you give all the glory to in your life. Or maybe it's your children. We know that they're gifts from the Lord, yet we build shelters for them right next to Jesus, and we live for them, and they're our ultimate goal, and we won't surrender them. Are they put in priority next to Jesus? You know, the insidious nature of idolatry is not that we get rid of Jesus. By all means, Jesus, you, you are uh, up in, on a pedestal, on, you know, on a, a different plane. We, we're able to uh, worship Jesus, but the insidious nature of idolatry is not that we get rid of Jesus, it's that we add to Jesus other things. He's one of many priorities that we have. Let's look in verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found Jesus alone. Now this scene is straight out of the Old Testament. Here the Shekinah, the glory cloud of the Lord envelops everyone present. And the response, and it's an appropriate response, is the fear of God. And after this, after, after um, the father says this, Moses and Elijah disappear. And the absence of Moses and Elijah after God says this is to show that he's exalting his son as the one and only and taking away all of his servants. Do you know what this tells us? That Jesus alone deserves all the glory. Can I get an amen? How do we worship Jesus on the mountain? Put up the next slide, please. If worshiping Jesus in the valleys requires obedience, then worshiping Jesus on the mountains requires surrender. The temptation in the valleys when we're at our lowest is confusion. We don't know the why. Why are you allowing this? Why am I going through this? And even though we can't answer the questions that we struggle with in the valleys, we can trust him and obey, just like Zelda. But the temptations on the mountains are different. When we're at our highest, the temptations that we have is carelessness. We forget the who. When God puts us on the mountaintops, when God pours out his blessings, when he answers our prayers, when he fulfills our dreams and desires, our tendency is to forget. You know, one of my life verses is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8. Just listen to this. Here, God is speaking to the Israelites before they go into the promised land, and he gives them a warning. He says this, when you have eaten and are satisfied, then praise the Lord your God for the good things he has given you. But be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, 
when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this for me, but remember the Lord your God. The temptation that we have on the mountaintops is to forget the who. It's this idea of carelessness. You know what the answer to that is? And this is where I close. The answer to that is surrender. It's surrender. You know, one of my greatest mentors, um, uh, he was a mentor in my early years of uh, pastoral ministry, uh, was a missionary to Brazil. He and his wife were tremendous influences in my life. And uh, they gave me this, and I'll never forget this. They said, when you deal with anything on the mountains, you need to do it with an open hand or open hands. So with every blessing that God gives you, whatever it is, you need to hold it with open hands. You don't ever try to close your hands and grasp tightly to what God gives you. And so as you're holding it with open hands, you see that it's a blessing from God and you can enjoy it. You acknowledge that it's a gift. That it's God's. And I've done this in my life where when I get a car, it's not my car, it's God's car, right? When I'm living in a house, it's not my house, it's God's house, right? When I have a relationship, I realize that this relationship is from God. But if God decides to take that blessing away for whatever reason, our response is we thank God for the time that we had with that blessing, Our response is that we praise God for the blessing that he gave us for that portion of time. Do you know what he was teaching? My mentor was teaching that our response must be surrender. It must be an open hand, giving everything back to the Lord. That's how we worship Jesus on the mountains, right? To give all glory back to the Lord. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your transfiguration. Because it teaches us that our experiences matter. That our experiences are shaping and forming us. Lord, wherever we are, whether we're in the valleys or on the mountains or anywhere in between, Lord, we ask that we would live our lives to make you the master and the Lord of everything we do. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-host together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through, um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have 
quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.